VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Welcome to The Ruck, your rugby podcast from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm joined this week as we look ahead to round three of the Six Nations and look back on a weekend of, of Gallagher Premiership by Stephen Jones, rugby correspondent for The Sunday Times, and Will Kelleher, who's been pushed back into a panel position and out of the chairman's seat. Uh, who, he's our new deputy rugby correspondent. Will, how are you? Yeah, great, Alex. How are you going? You're all right, thank you. How was your rugby or sporting weekend? Uh, yeah, it was good. I, I... Had a Saturday off, but went to Harlequins against Wasps on a bit of a busman's, and I was enjoying a lot of the Winter Olympics as well. I mean, it's amazing to see the curling, wasn't it? The women's yeah. curling late at night, well, early in the morning, wasn't it? That was special. Steve, did you enjoy that? I, I loved it, the curling. Yeah, I never, I, you know, I follow it right throughout the the time between the two games. I follow it avidly, honestly. Do you? By the way, congratulations on your award as uh, nomination as Rugby Writer of the Year. Thank you, and Steve, congratulations to you too thank, on your thank nomination. You very much. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh. Passed over. I can't believe it. Uh, it's outrageous, actually. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think the judges are very. They get it right most years. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the best chance between you two then? Me. Yeah? Mm. What number would this be, Steve? 43. 43. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not. No, I'd I, I love my, one of my colleagues to win it. Nick Simon calls Nick Simon from the Men on Sunday calls it the Stephen Jones Cup. Mm. Why? I assume because he thinks you've won it so much. Right. Well, it I, think it's a, I think it's a compliment. I did tell him it's been downgraded a bit since he won it. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve's talking about the uh, uh, Sports Journalists Association uh, nominations that came out I, this um, week. I, I had a, um, a, a great weekend. I love going to that Brentford ground, London Irish crowd. It yeah. absolutely poured with rain. Uh, but it was... It was I, I really enjoyed it. And... Um, there was a certain football match I enjoyed as well, played at Manchester, Manchester City's ground. So it was all in all, it was a decent sporting weekend. It's a great stadium, though, isn't it? For, for they've they built it so the the noise stays in. It's, it's really yeah. cleverly designed, I think. But Brentford, yeah. Well, the, th- the thing is with it, what I what I think is that place. There are so many rugby fans in that area, and, and like southwest London, and also on a Sunday you can just there's so many places you can go and have a brunch or lunch and a few beers and actually then pop in so I reckon eventually they'll get people who don't know much about rugby or, or about and they're always popping in to, to see it It'll well you great. were there I was there yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just walked straight into that yeah. um, coming up on the ruck we'll be joined by Dylan Hartley the former England captain and now Times columnist to look ahead to round three of the Six Nations England v Wales Scotland v France and Ireland v Italy Plus, we'll touch upon the latest in the Gallagher Premiership, Steve's visit to the Brentford Community Stadium, and we'll name our god or goddess, or maybe our devil of the week. But first up, all eyes will be on Twickenham this weekend as England play Wales in um, a literally a pivotal game in the Championship. That the uh, it, the title ambitions of both teams are on the line. Um, so let's look ahead to that and the rest of the action with Dylan Hartley. Will and Steve. 
We're joined now by Dylan Hartley, former England captain. Dylan, thanks for joining us on The Ruck. How are we doing? First time on The Ruck, I reckon. Second, second, second. You have been on before. Do you remember when? I'm I'm all potted out these days. Do you remember when? (laughs) Your book book had just come out. Oh, so a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, That was kind of um, the height of the, the COVID sort of lockdown, so... As where this was a new way of working, whereas now it's just a bit boring, isn't it? No, it's just yeah, same old, same old. So we've got a big week uh, in the Six Nations, Dylan. This, this England, uh, one one win, one defeat, coming up to play Wales at home in what, in, in in every sense of the word, is a is a pivotal game. What do you, you've? I think Will was telling us before you've you've got a pretty decent record against against the Welsh, but how do you see this week and this weekend in particular unfolding? Uh, I think both teams are sort of growing into the tournament. I think both teams obviously started uh, slowly. I think Wales obviously caught um, with a bit of a walloping over in Dublin there and England. I don't think England played poorly in Scotland, but obviously a result doesn't go their way and they have another week uh, together to, I suppose, get on the same page. Um, longer together in this tournament, teams seem to grow. And obviously if you're winning um, as well, confidence grows with that. So... I think this is a pivotal weekend for both teams. The success of a campaign can kind of, this is a tipping point in the tournament, I suppose. So this weekend is huge for both of them. I, I genuinely, but pre-tournament, went into this Six Nations, obviously looking at a couple of genuine contenders this year in, in Ireland, um, France, and I even put England in there. Um, and I, I think everyone's got the capability of beating each other in the tournament. I don't think we'll see a Grand Slam. So... Uh, it could come down to points difference and, and games like this weekend um, obviously count for, for a lot within that sort of context. Is there a special element to England-Wales? I and mean, we probably ask England players that ahead of every game they play because the rivalries are so deep with Scotland and, and Ireland. But is there anything from your recollection of of England-Wales that makes it that bit different? Yeah, I, you know, it's genuine for, for me in my time. Um, I don't want to talk about my record against them. Um, <laughs> well, you can do that. But I... I decent sort of success but I think it was born the rivalry for me and in, in my time was born out of respect they were genuine I suppose genuine contenders in the last sort of decade that, that I played so it was a proper game you know it wasn't it wasn't a sure thing so there was a genuine respect there I get loads of kids kind of whenever I do like a school visit or a you know some sort of Q&A type thing loads of kids say oh what was the worst place to you know where did you least like going and I always rephrase it into what was the best place to go? You know, what was the most hostile place to go? Where were we not want, you know, where were we hated effectively? Um, where was that passion and that rivalry um, at its at its highest? And that was for me in Cardiff, uh, which made it such a, a special sort of fixture um, because of the atmosphere, the, the atmosphere that drives that, that sort of emotion. And from the emotion, you get these big performances. And I've, I've been on the, the back end of a couple of hidings down in Wales, but equally I've, I've had some great sort of some wins there. And, and one to note would have been Elliot Daly's sort of four minutes to go finish in the corner. So great place to go and win. Also uh, a great place to, to experience losing there because you can feel that sort of emotion and um, atmosphere that, that Cardiff generates, which it's not just Cardiff, is it? It's the whole, it's whole bloody country come together for it, which is, um, it's, there's not many um, fixtures like it. Um, for, for me as an England player. You, you talked about the importance of growing into a Six Nations and how the team, you know, you, you, because you, I guess bonds get tighter and you get a, you get a flow to things. England, 
started on the back foot with, with that defeat. Um, they beat Italy in the game. They're always going to win, and there were there were flashes of of promise. Now going into Wales, they've got they've got some big name players coming back in. Joe Launchbury is is in the training squad. Courtney Law's in the training squad. Manu Tuolangi is fit, and according to Sale, better than ever, fitter than ever, could well come straight back into the team against Wales. You have played with him and and against him. Is he England's most important player? Because when he's there, everything fits around him more easily. Just just give us an insight into into what he does to your team, but also to opponents when he's when he's named in a lineup. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. Like if he's unavailable, and I think it's a strength of England's that their player pools, you know, like two or three deep in each position. Like we we could pick a fifteen. You know, the the four of us on this call could. Um, pick a 15 of who we'd like to see start but I think we'd all agree around one player in that 12 or 13 position wherever you put Manu um, I think he's going to be in that team and I don't think England have ever I suppose complained about injuries they've had injuries in the past I, I remember uh, I suppose under my tenure with Eddie we, we had big injuries uh, people out but we always found someone to come in and they played equally as well um, but with Manu he just brings a completely different dynamic to that team um, and when you when you line up in a tunnel and you're walking out or you're preparing on a Tuesday Thursday and you know you've got money in your team equally like you look around the, the tunnel and you see a Courtney Laws or a Joe Launchbury kind of two old heads effectively it seems crazy calling them old heads but like two giants of men physically dominant it just adds that sort of level of confidence to your game um, you've got people who are established, been there and done it, but also when they, on their day, are world-class as well, world beaters. So I think Manu ticks all of those boxes. He's a world beater. He's a world-class player. Um, his impact on the game is huge. You know, whether it's an attack or defence, he he adds a completely different dynamic to that team. So, and and looking at England's opening sort of fixtures, um, I think they and it's been wrote about by a few people and talked about, but that sort of punch in that midfield, whilst we've got plenty of, um, I suppose, silky attacking options, Manu does possess that, but what he does possess is just 105, it might be 110. You never know with propaganda on weights these days. <laughs> like, what people, like Weenie Antonio saying 151 kilos, like, you know, I used to lie about my weight, so I didn't have to do extra fitness, but um, it seems in France, they, they embrace that, you know? So, you know, Manu, 105, you know, it could be 110 kilos, you know, coming down the channel of a opposition fly half and 12. Dylan, Steve, I'm just going to ask you about Courtney. You and he basically, to a certain extent, grew up together. I always remember when he first came in the team, you know, he was a sensation. He, I remember him being in a big fight behind the dead ball line at Gloucester or, or somewhere. And when in interviewed, when you interview him, he wouldn't say anything and he'd be giving you the evil eye and, and all that. He was a real real sort of tough character but now like he's England captain he's speaking beautifully playing really well he's become a sort of elder statesman is do, do you think he sort of changed his character has changed or or was he always a kind of decent guy who was hiding it I think it just comes with, with all things you know he's he, he's matured he's a he's a father of four um, I'm sure he's had to relax a bit there um, <laughs> kind of yeah. Um, do you know what? The, the game you're referring to was Borgwon. Uh, oh, was it? Okay. He was a kid coming through, and I remember him getting smacked in the face, and he took it on the chin like a champ. 
But yeah. but equally, his first ever game in the, um, the championship with Northampton, I remember thinking, this this kid's massive. Like he'd come up from the academy, and you remember, like he he grew up literally over the road from from Franklin's Gardens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he is as local as you can get. You could throw a stone from the the Barwell stand and hit his parents' house. You know, so seeing this kid kind of walk to training, and then he kind of played a couple of Monday night games, and used to lurk on the wing. And he'd do a big tackle every now and then, and you think, yeah, he's massive, he, he's talented, he can smack people, but can he can he work hard? That's what you always ask about mm. sort of kids. And I'm only three, four years older than Courtney, but um, I suppose I was already around the England team at that point, and everyone was talking about him making that step. Then he played his first senior game, and um, he was. I remember looking at him thinking, this kid's gormless. He doesn't speak, doesn't say anything. <laughs> and I was looking for a reaction from him saying, come on, let's, you know, let's go, let's go. He's just looking at me, glazed over. But then turned out after the game, he'd broken his jaw and he just didn't <laughs> tell anyone about it. So the reason he couldn't communicate is because he broke his jaw and he just sucked it up and got on with it. And um, it's a bit like his career, I think. He's just, uh, it's not been perfect for him, you know. There's a, a moment there for, for a few Six Nations and summer tours he'd always get an injury mm-hmm. um, he, otherwise he, he'd be up there with your Jason Leonard's and your Ben Young's you know he'd be knocking on that sort of door and I think in this sort of I don't want to call it a twilight of his career but this back end of his career he's added his ball carrying mm-hmm. to his game and he's became targeted and then he adds a handling to his game because he's getting targeted just like his tackle selection you know so he's now got ball carrying ability handling selection and it to me just shows um an amount of work ethic because behind the scenes he's adding things to his game and you just can't bolt that on overnight you know uh, every day after training after that conversation with Eddie I remember him um, picking people up after Northampton training and running kind of um, running lines off nine and using the the goalposts as defenders so if you watch Courtney when he takes the ball takes the ball very square and he steps back and straightens up a defence so he worked really hard on that um, and again with his handling. So do you know what? Just um, chuffed a bits for him. His career has not been perfect. He hasn't played every game, but um, plenty of injuries and, and whatnot. And he's, he's stuck at it, you know. And for me, he's a guy that walks back into that team, um, whether it's at, at captain or six or lock, wherever it may be, he's first in that team sheet. And I think the biggest sort of nod um, it's not just Eddie that sees that. You know, Warren Gatlin did very similar in the summer without Courtney uh, playing any games. He walked straight into a test side. You mentioned Ben Youngs there, Dylan, um, who, assuming he's going to be selected, is going to break the men's record of caps that Jason Leonard sent, set. Sorry. Um, the one thing I'd like to ask you is about England's relationship as a nation with their sort of um, most experienced and most capped players. It, to me... Aside from the O3 guys, it seems like the sort of English public and maybe the English media, that's us too, have this sort of odd relationship where someone like Ben Youngs has been England scrum half for so long, but there's always been a conversation about who next, isn't there? And maybe Courtney had a period where he had a similar thing, and I'm sure you've had periods like that as well yourself. And just looking at the list of other guys at the top of these lists, like Dan Cole and Danny Kerr and George Ford and... All those guys, James Haskell. It seems like in other countries they're better at revering their their greats, kind of thing. Was England sometimes has a bit of a a problem with it? Well, I don't know what you think on that front. I don't think we've got a problem. Mm. Um, th- there's two points to this sort of chat for for me. Like 
firstly, like you look at Alistair Cook, Sir Alistair Cook, mm. you know, that same thing happened with him. And you know, on a, on a much lesser thing that happened to me, there's always a better option. There's always someone sparklier, sexier, shinier, you know, more talented, younger coming through. And do you know what I'm seeing right now with the narrative in the media? It's the same thing that happened with me when my time was up, you know, from, from the media's point of view. And then everyone wanted Owen to be the captain and bang. And now the same thing is happening to Owen. Mm. It's like, it's like the same story. You just change the names. It's, it's always the, it's just the dynamic of, um, of what's next, you know, and you got to remember that is, I suppose, the cycle of, of a sportsman or, or woman. It's just, there's always someone new coming along. But in reference to your other point about celebrating our, our people, I suppose England, we, we've not really hit those caps. You know, you look at other countries, they seem to tip those, those that 100 caps, that century with more ease. And I think, you know, a basic set of theory is, is that we've never really had continuity in an England manager. I felt for between Jono and Stuart Lancaster, um, there was a lot of, a lot of caps. You know, there's a lot of combinations trialed out. And this is why I admire Eddie. He's kind of stuck with his people, stuck to his guns. Um, and again, the other thing is, is like, if you look at Ireland, Wales, to a certain extent, their sort of central contracting, the the longevity they can get out of their players, the All Blacks, uh, people like that. And we play a lot of rugby yeah. in the uh, in the Premiership. If if you've looked at stats, I was talking to Paul O'Connell about it actually because he he had a century. Mm. But then if you look at games he played for Munster, still. Um, a respectable amount but if you compare that to Johnny Sexton think, or someone yeah no I think if you compared it to to mine oh, um, so yes I, I think I played about 100 more club games in them and I retired four years earlier mm-hmm. so I just think the toll that um the, the English players take there's always been chop and change in selection we play a lot more rugby here careers probably aren't managed as well as they could be um so yeah I think for, for someone like Pin Youngs to get to even even a hundred games is is massive. You know, I fell three short, and when you fall three short, you think, "Oh, it would have been nice to get three more." <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's again like in a, in a position like scrum half, it's it's crazy to think, you know, that's ten years of Six Nations, that's ten years of summer tours and Lions tours chucked in there, but, and and then how many club games yeah, for Leicester as well? Odd, probably, yeah. It's an unbelievable sort of nudge. And um, again, it's not like your Courtney or Joe Launchbury where, or Morrow, you know, you can play six, four or five. Mm. Um, this is kind of three positions you can fill in. Like nine is just like hooker. There's always someone better. There's always someone shinier, quicker, mm. zip, zip, zippier or, or whatever he called yeah, it. Zip, zip, man, yeah. When you look at this game on Saturday, England-Wales, we've talked about some of the, the big names that England will have we assume they're going to come straight back into the 23, if not, if not the 15, Manu and Courtney and Ben Youngs will be around. What would worry you as an England player about Wales? Um, what would you be marked, marking your card on? Is it someone like, is it mentality? Is it the, the kind of backs against the wall performance we saw from from Dan Bigger, who seemed to inspire his whole team? Um, is, is there a, a battleground in particular that you see as being critical? I just think England have, have, I suppose, grown into the tournament. I think they attacked beautifully against Scotland, but without that sort of punch, it was a lot of sort of phase play. And they they managed to keep the ball a lot. They just didn't have that conviction to 
I suppose, takeaway points or, or crack Scotland's defence, which was outstanding. I think with Wales, and then obviously England go to Italy and they play that same sort of game again. Um, they, they created opportunity. So I think week three, obviously a down week, the train week four, go into a game. They've got good attacking shape. They can score or create opportunity. Whereas with Wales, they obviously got hiding out in Dublin. They didn't really show their hand. And then against Scotland, I saw more of a, a dogged performance, one probably by, you know, set piece back to basics, um, dogged defence. I just can't see Wales cracking England open, whereas I can see England, if they can hold and retain the ball, I think they might be, well, I hope they can break down Wales' defence. 
I wouldn't say respectable, but it's better than what it was. So I just hope they've got some sort of pathway. And look, it's a hell of a place to go. It's, it's, oh, it is I, a great I weekend. loved it. That is true. And I think one of the issues with this is that on our fixture list we've got Ireland Italy we know which way that game is, is going to go and as, as Steve said there is a limit on what you can on how you can judge Italy's opponents in, in any game Scotland France however um, has a lot of intrigue to it um, Scotland have have beaten France at the last two times they played um, France are, are in many people's eyes the the, the favourites to, to win this championship um, maybe the most likely to win a, a slam um, what do you think? You say that Italy, Ireland's a foregone conclusion, right? Which mm. the result is 100%. percent you you got to remember it's just another 80 minutes. So things can happen, you know, pivotal players, you know. So if, is Johnny Sexton going to be back or does Johnny Sexton come back and play that game to get a run in? Does he injure himself again? You know, do Ireland pin their hopes on someone like Johnny Sexton? So you still got to get through another game of, of kind of attrition and 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 whatnot. But the other thing is, I remember we lost the Six Nations to Ireland uh, and we watched Ireland's game. We Our last game of the, the tournament was in Italy. So we played Italy. Uh, our result was in the bag. And then we sat there and we watched Ireland play France, I believe. Mm. And um, the it came down to points difference. And as it turned out, if we hadn't conceded a last-minute score against Italy, um, you know, the, the tournament would have gone our way. So when, when you think about Italy being a foregone conclusion, how well can Ireland beat Italy? Can they put 60 points on them? Or do they go out then? Do they get caught in a, you know, a 33-14? Do they concede a couple of tries and it affects their points difference mm. if it comes down to that? So when you say foregone conclusion, well, I said that, it, it obviously, for me, result-wise is, but there's so many other factors to consider. You know, you got to get, your team through unscathed, you know, you don't want injuries. You got to keep your, your, your defensive kind of clean sheet. You want that. And you want to put as many points in the board as well. So um, it's not an easy fixture. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky one. Cause you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Right. I, I, I said, um, I said France were the most likely to, or in many people's favorites to win the slam. They are of course the only team who, who still can win the grand slam. How do you see them, their development, Sean Edwards with them, this game against Scotland at, at Murray Field, as I said, Scotland have won this fixture the last two years. So this is the, the last time Scotland won that. They had fourteen men though. France mm. did right. Yeah, how um, punching Jamie Ritchie in the face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean Jamie Ritchie, what a player! Is he? Is he still out? Isn't he? Yeah, he's out. He's yeah, out yeah, yeah, unfortunately, That's a shame. He's one of my favourite players, Scott. He's unbelievable. I think Hamish Watson gets loads of credit where, where it's due. To be fair, but Jamie Ritchie punches well above his weight and it almost gives that bit of um that physical sort of bite or presence um yeah i love watching him play but um yeah i think scotland when i when i said at the start of the tournament i said you know ireland france england for me were, were genuine contenders but um i see scotland and wales is i suppose still developing um in many ways and they are like they they win more than they lose and they're the upsetters so they'll knock someone off so this weekend, are they going to knock off France? And I think, you know, consistency being their biggest issue, um, can they win back-to-back games, which they've shown us they can't, but they can beat England week one, then they go away and they lose. So then backs against the wall this weekend, they reset. Can they go out and beat France? I think they can. But, and I think the French, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, history, it is a very young team, but 
do they carry that sort of baggage of the last two results? But equally, you know, if I was Sean Edwards, you'd be sitting there pumping up the tyres, poking and prodding them, saying the last two times I've been there were lost. So how does that team, French team, mentally react to that? Do they come out swinging? Or does that subconsciously think, you know, this is this is Scotland's game. It's going to be tough. So I'm, I'm undecided on that, if I'm honest. Did, did you see the video of Sean Edwards addressing the, the squad that came out from His the French camp French, last week? Yeah. In, 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 in sort of pigeon French with a very, very strong Wigan accent. <laughs> um, what, and what was the... I haven't seen... I will look at it, but what was the... the he was it was more I think defense around the mall yeah in particular he was talking like analysis about, but it was it was delivered in in exactly the way you'd imagine Sean Edwards would deliver any team talk <laughs> but it was and he did his very very best to, to deliver it all in Fair French play, yeah uh, brilliant but with a he hasn't quite mastered the accent he's got the language <laughs> but he hasn't quite got the accent um, I, I think his Sean. um I think his sort of impact on that team northern blue collar sort of edge that probably France they possess but they've lacked and mm. you know consistently and I think that is the biggest thing for me he's added a consistency to their attitude mm. because defense is based on attitude right mm. and if you've got a good defensive attitude we all know what the French can do when they've got the ball in hand you look at their top 14 sides you look at the national side when they get the ball they come alive um but for me, in the past, we used to try and find their tight five, you know, because after ruck two or three, they'd be getting up off the floor, walking backwards. There'd be hands on hips in the defensive line. You could find those sort of, you want to expose those those tight five players. Whereas now, you look at their tight five, man. Some of their best like players got, in the tight five, yeah. Yeah, that it's not optional you know it's every time and the best thing about it is 50 minutes you talk about south africa's bomb squad these guys bring on a tight five they're mm. bringing on 500 kilos of of <laughs> it's probably more than that help me out mm. it's definitely yeah. more than that yeah. Yeah. i remember yeah. more than half a ton a of, couple of years ago france had the heaviest pack ever assembled in test rugby of like 155 stone or something which oh, is ridiculous <laughs> But they've got that coming on. Yeah. And and this is where I think attitude-wise, I don't know what Gaultier is like as a coach, but I just, it, it stinks of Sean Edwards, you know? Mm. And playing against a Welsh side all those years, you could you could smell his sort of character or feel his character throughout that team. Um, and I think I could see a bit of that coming through in that French side, which which is good, right? Yeah. It, makes yeah, it, it leaves that tournament that leaves this tournament, sorry, um, slightly more open mm. instead of for years it was it was England, Ireland or Wales, whereas now you chuck Scotland in there, the serial kind of upsetters or underdogs, whatever you want to call them. Um, and then you've got France in there firing. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty, it is the best tournament because of that reason. Yeah, and I think you've teed up this middle weekend um, brilliantly there, Dylan, with you know, with three games, and even as you as you well put it, the Islanders Hilly game with with a lot on it that, that could, as as the championship unfolds, that game could end up coming back to be pivotal. Um, thank you very much for for joining us on the ruck. We en- enjoy reading your words in the paper and and now listening to your insight, even if you do put yourself down, your insight on the ruck. So thank you very much for coming on. Alex, have you just given yourself compliments? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we enjoy reading your words. We just need everyone to know. They're your that, words. That's actually your words. They're your words put into a into a, an order by me. 
You're too kind, mate. Thank you very much. Dill, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dill. Good on you, boys. God bless, mate. Thank you to Dylan Hartley for joining us on The Ruck. Next up on the pod, we'll round up the Premiership results from the weekend. We'll have our God or Goddess or maybe our Devil of the Week. But first, Jess Hayden rounds up the latest in the women's game. Round 14 of the Premier 15s began as Wasps welcomed Bristol Bears to Twyford Avenue. Despite early tries from Wasps Maud Muir and Bristol's Phoebe Murray, the wind and rain soon took over and the game was scoreless from the 10th minute. Bristol therefore left with a 7-5 win. Worcester Warriors recorded a 57-17 win against DMP Durham Sharks as Worcester seemed to be the only part of the UK to have sunshine over the weekend. Loughborough Lightning played their first game at Franklin's Gardens as part of their partnership with Northampton Saints against Exeter Chiefs. The Devon side led for periods throughout the match but it was Sadia Kabea's try in the 79th minute that secured Loughborough's 28-25 win in front of thousands of fans. Saracens were meant to host Gloucester Hartbury on Saturday but the game was postponed due to damage to the Stonex Stadium and the match will be rearranged for one of the upcoming bye weeks. On Sunday, Harlequins beat Sale Sharks 48. Sale made several visits to the Harlequins 22 but only came away with one try. The player of the match was Shauna Brown, chosen for her pummeling attack that led to two tries, but Ellie Green was another standout performer. The young fly half is yet to break into the England senior side, but her impressive performance from the tee, converting all but one try in gale force wins, will stand her in good stead as England head coach Simon Middleton selects his Six Nations side. The match formed part of the Harlequins Pride Fixture Week and Harlequins released research this week in partnership with researchers from Australia which found that over half of female rugby players say that homophobic and sexist jokes deter many girls from playing the sport. 37% had heard homophobic slurs at their club in the last year and 59% had heard sexist slurs and negative jokes about women. It's yet another reminder that rugby should be a place for all and that despite the wonderful advances in women's rugby in recent years, there's still a long way to go. It's a big round next week with a top-of-the-table clash between Bristol Bears and Saracens and you can read a preview of round 15 in the Rugby Weekend Guide which is published every Thursday on thetimes.co.uk. Thank you to Jess for giving us the latest in the Allianz Premier 15s. Switching to the men's competition, this was a notable weekend, Will, you're, you're a stutter, you sent us this, courtesy of Stuart Farmer, that the combined winning margin was 18 points across the league, which is the second lowest it's ever been. There was an 11-point uh, weekend in 2004-05. Does that show us that this is the great, the greatest competition there is because everything's so tight, which is certainly how Premiership Rugby would present these, these statistics is it because of the weather and the conditions that that, that hit the league um, or is it just a one-off yeah well it was a, it was a great weekend wasn't it and lots of last minute wins I think just looking at the table you'd probably say that a couple of teams are having worse seasons than usual like Exeter and a couple of teams are having better seasons than usual like London Irish Gloucester and it's all tightening up I mean if you're looking at the table so Northampton are in ninth and they're on 41 points and you've got Quinns up in third on 48 so that's a pretty the running's going to be cool isn't it I mean yeah. you've got teams like Wasps who who lost to Quinns the other day but they're on a nice run Sale are improving Irish are looking good Exeter are sort of clinging on to that sort of fourth fifth 
position. But you know when they get into the sort of championship games at the end of the season, they're going to grow, aren't they? And teams like Bristol from last season are sort of long gone, aren't they? Which is it's amazing, isn't it, to see someone go top of the league last season to now struggling in 10th months later, isn't it? It's a good thing when... It, it's a great thing for, for spectacle and for the tension when it, it's so close, you don't know who's really who's going to win until the end. But it's the Premiership actually has always been... never been quite as tight as that, but it's always been mm. a lot tighter than the, the old Celtic League yeah. and the old Super Super Rugby, which was like 84-40 was their, was their score. And it, I just think it's brilliant. And um, if only they can they can... Uh, get round the problem that they employ some of the greatest players in the world rugby and never see them. If they can only get around that, then the Premiership will be well away. I guess we will have, for the run-in, the way that the, the season is now structured, there'll be weekends off for Europe, but from the end of the Six Nations through to the end, you do get a good a good run. So as, as mm. Will says, that that race for the top four will, should be compelling. It, it should be. And I tell you what, I, I think as someone who's always pro... Um, keeping the, the trap door and, and not having a closed shop. I think they're very lucky because I think the, the bottom of the table would have been dead. In fact, mm. may still be dead. But this, because the top and the middle is so competitive, Alex, I think that, that, that that's bailed them out because there will be a lot of big games right till the end, which is a good thing. Which the, is a good thing. There seem to be issues afoot at, at Bristol, but Worcester are showing the, the, the impact that Steve Diamond can make with, with that win. Steve, you were at Brentford, as we said, at London mm. Irish, who... We're having a, a fantastic, a fantastic season, aren't they? They're having a fantastic season. Um, it, the, the the club is growing. Um, you know, there was it was the worst day you'd ever seen rugby played in, but there was like eight thousand there. You think, well, that, that that's good. A couple of points, first of all, um, uh, very very tight, but they did deserve it. I mean, they could easily uh, Southers could have sneaked it, uh, but but in terms of individuals, um, the Vunipolas. Marco Vanapola played probably the best game I've seen him have for five years. He was captain. He was absolutely tremendous. So was Billy. Billy wasn't quite as as big as Mako, but if you'd seen those two guys, you would have said, hang on, why are these guys not in the England team? Mako was absolutely dominant. He was a dominator. And uh, so, no, it, it, it was a great game. I think the, the um, great for London Irish to come in as the home side. And uh, a, a just really, a really outstanding Premiership game in what I think, and I've watched every season, is the is the best season there's been. I saw London Irish lose at Saracens a few weeks ago in the European Challenge Cup, and it never really looked like they were going to win it or, or, or be in it. This time at home was so different. Saracens are missing one or two away with England, but as you said, you know, any pack with Vunipola's in it is it's a fearsome prospect, and, yeah. and Saracens have the depth and the quality to, to cope with a couple of absentees. So Absolutely. what does it say about London Irish and, and, and how they're doing? A, a lot. I mean, you know, they, they've got this guy, Curtis Rohner, in the centre, who, mm. whose pass gave the pass for three three tries. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, but they, whatever it is in, in, in the recipe there, they're really playing for the jersey. I mean, let's be fair, very few of them are Irish. Very few of them come from London, but but they, they are they do play for the jersey, and I have to say that Declan Kidney, uh, Les Kiss have done a fantastic job, and I just think in two years' time, three years' time, they could be near the top. I think they could fill the stadium. It, they're a real bonus for the Premiership. Is it not true to say that London Irish are kind of discovering what they should be, the yeah. sort of exiles team, the fun team in Southwest London, as you were saying? attracting people to the pubs and bars around Kew Bridge and stuff like that. Yeah. They've, they've kind of 
captured what they lost in Reading when they yes. moved away from their home base and what they were trying to do. I mean, they've got an Irishman in charge, haven't they, Declan Kidney? But it just seems like they're tapping into that kind of Aussie, Kiwis, um, a few Irish lads, a few young guys. Their academy has always produced really good players, hasn't it? Guys like Hassel Collins, who is one of these unfortunate guys that keeps getting picked in England squads and then sent home every Tuesday, which must be mm. a nightmare. Um, but yeah, I think they're they're tapping in nicely there, aren't they? Yeah, they've got that academy is is massive. I remember talking to to club owners there when they announced the move back to Bristol uh, when they announced when they announced the move back to Brentford, and being able to to retain those players was was critical. You know, a critical element in in the move that if they can they can you know capture a fan base and be competitive, then this this productive academy that they have and. Tom Pearson is now another who's mm. who's been fast tracked straight through into mm. into the England into the wider England frame and, and Ollie Hustle Collins. Plus they've got young coaches like like Jonathan Fisher who who are making real strides and a real impact. And you know I think you see that across the league as well that the, the young brains coming through in in in, in the coaching ranks is is fascinating. Mm. Um, you were at Quinns where and last yeah. week you spoke to all the coaches there who've just signed on mm. again, you know, relatively young in in their coaching lives, but have already made a massive impact yeah, there. Yeah, all in their 40s. Um, I think that actually, just on a wider point, it's interesting, isn't it, that lots of the team, apart from um, Worcester, who've gone for Steve Diamond, when teams have changed their coach, they've all gone for the young, probably cheaper option. And some have had teething problems, but they're kind of coming through a bit more now. George Skivington at Gloucester, I mean, they're in the top four now. Quinn's had their coaching committee for a little bit after the Paul Gustard thing didn't work so well. It's it's actually quite positive to see lots of young British, English coaches around the league at the moment. But yeah, the Quinn's situation, the interesting thing there was that I suppose the most newsy element of their re-signing was that they're now on permanent contracts. They're not on a sort of two-year, three-year deal. Tabai Matson, Nick Evans, Jerry Flannery, Adam Jones are all kind of permanent members of staff now. And what was the thinking behind that? I think it's it's a security thing. Um, that Basically, all of, the, all of those guys aren't from, from London and they've had to move families and things like that and it gives them some security. It probably gives them security financially as well that if they ever get snapped up by a test nation, then that's mm. a decent buyout, isn't it? it? It must also have an impact on how they go about the coaching and the yeah. building because they're not worried about the contract coming to an end and they could actually they have the faith from the Mm. from the the owners and the management to actually build something in perpetuity rather than just as as we get to kind of jumping from contract to contract and coach to coach the two things that when I chatted to those coaches that I found interesting that they said Jerry Flannery was saying that the problem about sort of modern sport is it moves too quickly almost and you're thinking about the next game, the next game, the next game, and no one really steps back and looks at the mm. wider picture. And if you look at the successful teams, Saracens, Leinster, Exeter, that's long-term, decade-long coaching staff sticking together. And also Nick Evans, who was part of the 2012 side, was talking about how they kind of lost their way. They achieved a great thing and then had no plan to sort of build on it after that. And then they lost a lot of England players who weren't being picked in the season before and just kind of muddled along for a few years, but now they're looking a bit more of a long-term vision. It's a bit like politicians and climate change, isn't it? It's sort of like everyone's looking at tomorrow and getting voted in for the next election, and no one's looking at the big wide picture because they're not going to be there for it. 
Uh, right, we need to round off this pod with our God or Goddess of the Week, or or the new Mark Evans feature, which is Devil mm. of the Week, which he's popped up with a couple of times. Will? Well, he's won it three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a hard one, isn't it? Because as journalists, we want coaches and players to tell us what they think, and whether we it's too much to say we like controversy is a bit far, but we don't want a world where coaches stop saying what they think because they're scared of headlines and things like that because that that kills the industry a bit. So Dean Richards is going to be my devil of the week because I think he just got it wrong on BT Sport. He was essentially accusing the referees of cheating and they said there was favouritism towards Exeter Chiefs in a few decisions, which I don't know if that's very fair. Um, He might cop a a little rap on the wrists or a ban, but especially when it comes to high tackles and contact with the head, it's an area we're trying to be really careful about. Josh Hodge catches the ball, looks up and gets shoulder in the face by Callum Chick, and there's no real argument about it. So for that reason, I think Dino got it wrong, and he might regret what he said himself. Steve? Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, yeah, mine's... uh, I mean, Curtis Rohn and London Ice was one, but I'm going to go very esoteric and sort of sideways at this. When um, uh, those people who are listening who've got kids or or those uh, youngsters who like going out to buy uh, their sports goods, um, which is a big thing for them, bats, balls, you know, protector, uh, kit, studs, uh, spanners, everything, it is incredibly difficult to get them these days because there are no great old-fashioned sports shops left. All you get are these cavernous things like a like an aircraft hangar full of donuts who haven't got a clue what they're selling, don't know anything about sport. Over the weekend, a great friend of mine and someone known to many loads of people called Freddie Hawkins passed away. Freddie Hawkins was the guru and the dominant force and the a- amiable force behind Hawkins Sports one of the great sports shops where you can go in and buy everything you want. They'll let you try the cricket bat, they'll let you try the hockey stick, and I just think that sports fans out there would should uh, just spare a thought for my God of the Week, Freddie Hawkins, former Wasps great, uh, because he has kept going the principle of brilliant sports shops, not air- aircraft hangers, where that bloke from used to own Newcastle gets all the money. I think that's a that's a lovely nomination, and all the more so because it wasn't Harry Kane, which was the person I was expecting you to, <laughs> Hang on. to oh, nominate. Freddie Hawkins is second. <laughs> no, Freddie, Freddie number one. Uh, mine goes to Jack Willis. Um, mm, for the yeah, last year, uh, I worked with Jack, helping him write his column for the Times. We we, we went to him after after he wrecked his knee playing for England against Italy with an idea of giving him a a platform to to take us sort of behind the scenes. You know, we don't we almost don't even talk about Jack Willis not being available for England anymore mm-hmm. because we we are so focused on what happens on the field. But it's the existence of professional players through injury that, as he says, some of the the toughest challenges they ever face are away from the spotlight, mm. off the field, battling their own demons, battling their own knee in this case, the times when he thought he might have to quit times when he thought he just would quit because it felt too far away um he wrote some some really detailed and and poignant columns through the last 53 weeks 
and on Saturday he came back to play for Wasps in the same squad as, as his brother and um, the turning point for him was November, December time the surgeon said if this if your knee swells up again we might have to have another operation he's thinking not sure I can cope with that so he slowed it all down his son arrived just around Christmas time and that became his focus and he's like I just want to play I want to play so Enzo can see me play and he came back and I thought it was just a so like all power to him for 53 weeks of battling mental challenges physical pain to get back in that squad play with his brother so he gets mine for this week good one I was at that game and it was just really heartening to see him run on and get a nice reception like everyone knew what mm. he'd been mm. through and I just find these guys utterly remarkable mentally to just bang and clang like they ever yep. did I mean, I remember watching Ellis Jenkins coming back for Wales as well, and you just think this guy is immediately in rucks, getting jackled away, pulled away from rucks. I mean, Willis won a turnover even, yeah. didn't he? Which yeah. was a throwback, really nice to see. And he's throwing himself into tackles, and you just think, how the hell do these guys do it? It's yeah, mad, he, he talked it? in his column on Saturday morning of, you know, he said, I can't lie, I'm scared. Like, mm. I've done as much prep as I can. I've had... Um, big props in our squad mm. crocodile rolling me out of rucks so I'm, I'm as mentally prepared as I can be but you can never be just you, you can never know and he does have a bit of an issue with the laws he doesn't feel they've changed as much as they should have done to to cope with crocodile rolls but he comes back and he plays and he wins a turnover and so uh, fair play to him I thought that was just a remarkable and it's been it's been great just journalistically to, to sort of be in touch with him over the last year and understand really what what goes into all that effort to come out and play whatever he plays 15, 20 minutes for um, for his club on, on Saturday. So that wraps up our Fallow Week pod. We're back next Monday um, to review round three of the Six Nations. Thank you to Dylan Hartley. Thanks to Will. Thanks to Steve. And thank you all for listening. Please uh, like and subscribe wherever you get your pod. And um, we will be back in seven days' time. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.